0: Uh, We have sang above your mercies, we have sang about how precious you are, and now I pray Lord you would allow your word to come forward, and I pray in our time together you would help us to grow in grace and truth, in Jesus' name, amen. So this last week, um, you know, because of Mother's Day, uh, a lot of people were on TV, particularly famous people were on TV, uh, talking about their moms. And uh, one gentleman, I don't know if you guys would know who John Cleese is, uh, but he was talking about his mom who had died recently. She lived to be, I think, 96. The interview that I was watching um, might have been a little older, but uh, he talked about how she was born and in her life, she saw the sinking of the Titanic, World War I, of course, the Great Depression, World War II. And saw a number of other major events like the moon landing, of course, the the society disruption that happened in the 60s with the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Uh, I remember a couple of years ago, I read a book called The Last of the Doughboys. And one of the stories that impacted me the most was a gentleman who worked for the railroad. And in 1956, I believe it was, he retired from the railroad. He had worked at the railroad for 40 years by that point. And he went on to live another 60 after that, and lived to be the ripe old age of 117, one of the last men who served in World War One, who were ever were last American men uh, to live that served in World War One. And one of the things uh, I saw this week was also a, a black and white video of a gentleman, it was a game show, I believe it was 1950-something, but there was a game show, and this gentleman came on the game show, uh, you had to guess the guy's secret. I don't remember what that show was called. Guy comes on the show, he has a secret. These panel of of players are supposed to try to figure out the secret. The man was 96 years old. He was the last survivor, uh, last surviving witness of the assassination of President Lincoln. It's amazing that in all of these conversations and all of these things that I read and in some of the pictures that I saw... One of the consistent things I started thinking about was, I wonder if any of these people saw this coming. I wonder if what they would have felt like, for example, to watch the whole world go to war for the first time, wondering about here, seeing them uh, seeing somebody go to the moon. imagine being born in the 19, or the 1880s, living long enough to see man go to the moon. But uh, the future, is something that, for some reason, humanity has consistently been curious about. But it is also the basis of most of the things that we're afraid of. For example, if you're afraid to fly, you're likely afraid because you can't guarantee that you're going to arrive at your destination safely. Parents fear for their children. Why? Why? Because there's just so much we don't know. We don't know if they're going to live. We don't know if they're going to thrive, if they're going to make it through school, or they going to get a nice job. We don't know if they'll find a spouse. And of course, the most important thing that we don't know is we don't know whether or not they're going to walk with the Lord. And so the future is something we have a tendency to Maybe think about for a little bit, but well, ultimately we try to keep ourselves from thinking about it too much because if there's one thing the future can tell us, it's this, that we are not in control, that we are not God. And for all the ways in our lives that we like to imagine that we are, the fear of the future, the future knowing that we have no control over the future will set us straight. Now, what are some of the things that humans do because of their fear of the future? Well, of course, over the history, there have been many false teachers that have come along and they've claimed to know the future. They say, come and follow me, David Koresh. How many of you remember the Waco incident? His entire movement was founded on the idea that David Koresh claimed to know the future. He claimed to know that they were just a handful of uh, of decades away from this great Armageddon, which is why they were stockpiling weapons, which is why that building exploded. But many, many people followed him. And we wonder, well, why would people follow somebody like that? Well, a lot of it is driven by our fear of the future. Somebody comes along and says, I know what's going to happen. Or if we don't follow a false teacher, what's another thing that a lot of human beings do because of our fear of the future? We look to a complicated system of the stars, don't we? A thing called horoscopes. We wonder if the alignment of the moon or the alignment of Mars and, uh, and perhaps the star Pisces, if they're in alignment, maybe that's the day you're going to uh, meet Mr. or Mrs. Wright. Or if perhaps this constellation is in the northwest corner of the sky, the next day you are free to go shopping. There are going to be good sales. But if it's not a man who claims to know the future, or maybe it's not horoscopes, another thing that a lot of human beings will turn to is what is known as the occult. Fortune tellers, tarot card readers, Ouija boards. We have this incessant desire. If we ever get this idea that we could know the future, we will will go after it. It's something of considerable interest. Now, throughout the Bible, all of those things are forbidden. God says if a, a man comes along and predicts the future and he's wrong, he's a false teacher. God tells the Israelites, don't look at the stars to try to figure out the future. And of course, he forbids them from ever turning to the occult. But God does know our struggles. He does know that we want to know the future. He knows that we struggle with knowing that we can't control the future. And so he does dedicate part of Scripture to telling us about the future. Now, one of the things I want to do this morning as we come to the book of Daniel is see in this final summary of the book some lessons that God has for us as he reveals things to us about the future. Uh, I want to just put a plug in here for Sunday school. I'll be the Sundays, adult Sunday school teacher for The summer, uh, I've landed, finally decided I'm going to do the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation. Uh, I'm I'm realizing that I can't cover everything in 35 minutes on a Sunday morning. So I want to go ahead and take and extend this series into that Sunday school class. But the book of Daniel is perfectly divided. First half of the book is a historical record. You read about Daniel. You read about all the things that he faces and all the difficulties he has to deal with. And a lot of times in his story, he doesn't know what the future is going to hold, right? He doesn't know what's going to happen. The moment he gets to the bottom of the pit, he doesn't know what's going to happen. His three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, get into the furnace, and they say to the king, we have no idea what's going to happen, but we're going to follow the Lord. And then the second half of the book is a series of four visions that are exclusively about the future. And so this final section of the book is really just a summary of, of this section on uh, on the vision part of the book. But again, there are lessons for us. As God tells us about the future, he he doesn't just tell us to pique our curiosity. He tells us these things to teach us lessons. And in this section of scripture, I have three lessons I want to point out to you that we see here. Number one, the first lesson is that we can trust God with the future. We can trust God with the future. Look at verse 4. God says to Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book. To seal a book, we're not talking about our what we think of as far as book form. Of course, this is going to be a scroll. He's saying, seal up this book. Now, this is an interesting picture because earlier in the book of Daniel, we find out about a cultural law that was happening in that day. In the Medo-Persian Empire, we're told in the book of Daniel, the king, when he decided to make an edict or he would decide to make a law, once he sealed it, not only does the whole country have to obey that law, but so does he. And he no longer has any power, once he has sealed it, he no longer has any power to make any changes to it. Now this rule was intended to keep kings from making haphazard or hasty kind of laws, which is what we see happen in Daniel. But the point is, is it would seal up. The, I think, the, the idea is, is if it's sealed, this is it. So God is saying to Daniel, this thing I have told you, these visions I have given you about the future, I want you to seal them up. Meaning God is saying, I have no intention of changing any of this. I have no intention of ever having to second guess myself. So I want you, Daniel, to seal it up. Now, after something was sealed, that seal could only be broken and broken to announce the declaration of the king by someone who could represent that king. And so it would have to be somebody with the authority, an appointed authority of the king. It had to be somebody in the right position of government. Or perhaps we could say, as they do in the book of Revelation, someone who is worthy. And so there is this. Scroll these pictures, these declarations of the future that Daniel is now told to seal up. But we also see in verse four that God says to Daniel, "You're going to seal it up, and from until the end when it is going to be unsealed, men are going to run to and fro, and knowledge will increase." The idea here is is really a callback to chapter ten. Chapter ten is the beginning of the final vision, the fourth vision of the book. And at the beginning of chapter 10, Daniel says he sees the vision, and for the first time in the book, Daniel says, I don't understand. In fact, Daniel was so uh, overwhelmed by what he saw, the Bible tells us that Daniel became physically ill, and it set him into a season of prayer and fasting. And so the idea here, that in, in verse 4, is that there are going to be many who are going to run to and fro, who are going to run around trying to understand what has been written in these visions. And many will try to figure out what to solve and how to solve it. But the reality is, until the seals are broken, there will not be a complete understanding Just like Daniel, desiring to know, after he sees the vision at the beginning of chapter 10, he begins to pray, begins to fast. He wants God to reveal what he just saw to him, explain it to him. And God will answer that prayer, but he will still only give a a, a partial explanation. As we'll see here in a moment, Daniel says that. He gives Daniel some explanation about what he saw, but not entirely. For example, Daniel saw in this fourth and final vision, Daniel saw a ruler described as someone who was swift. And in that description of that ruler, we can look back and we can see the life of Alexander the Great. Daniel doesn't, he's not called Alexander the Great, but Daniel told about Alexander the Great uh, hundreds of years before he arrives. Daniel is also told about a leader that is going to rise up out of the broken kingdom of that swift general. That's exactly what happens the moment Alexander the Great dies. The, his kingdom, the largest in the, uh, in the, on the planet's history at that time. The, the empire is broken and we see the rise of a man by the name of Antioch Epiphanes. And so Daniel's told about the rise of this man who will be one of the bloodiest persecutors of the people of God in all of human history. He's called Antioch Epiphanes because at some point in his kingship, he declared himself an epiphany or a representation or God himself. And forbid anybody else to worship any other God. But Daniel's also given a vision Of someone who will come at the time of the end, who is going to be like Antioch Epiphanes, but not be Antioch Epiphanes. And we know this person as the Antichrist. And we know that this man will do incredibly, he will persecute the people of God in an incredible way. But he too will meet his end. But the point here is that Daniel has been shown a vision of the future that God has already decreed. Daniel, seeing that vision, has seen a number of people, or his people, persecuted. In that vision, he sees the the desecration of God's temple. In that vision, he sees open blasphemy. He sees terrible things, but he also sees things that are completely and utterly unclear. Again, he sees what is clearly Alexander the Great, what is clearly Antioch Epiphanes, but again, there's this more wicked man. Not everything about that man is completely and totally revealed to Daniel. And God says to Daniel, after all of that, seal it up. Put it away. The message is clear to Daniel. I've given you some parts. I've not given you every part. But I'm going to have to call you now to trust me. One of the applications for us out of this is we must be careful because it seems to be almost an industry today, to take sections of our Bible like Daniel that gives us apocalyptic, futuristic prophecies and not treat them like tarot cards and horoscopes. To not look at them in the sense of we're going to try and map this out and we're going to figure out what this person is and who that person is. We've got to become Christians because of that atmosphere where we are uh, using the prophetic parts of Scripture not as they're intended to edify us, but to try and satisfy this ongoing desire to know the future, a lot of Christians today are getting caught up in conspiracy theories. I mean, whole books are being written out uh, out of books like the book of Daniel, that are using and twisting scriptures to set up all manner of conspiracy theories about this person or that government or that nation. And you see, when we get caught up in those kind of things, it doesn't show God that we trust him. It actually shows God that we don't. Because we're not willing to be satisfied, as he's calling Daniel to do here, with what we have been told. We're trying to figure it all out. But Daniel's not going to be told everything. The apostle John later in Revelation is not going to be told everything. And both of them are going to be told to trust God with the future. And that we are to not be, for example, like the disciples. When they they feared the future, the disciples betrayed, they scattered, they denied the Lord. So we can trust God with the future. Number two... The second lesson out of this summary of the end, we can trust God with times of distress. Verses 5 through 7, we're given a scene, then a question, then an answer. This is a really interesting, I I enjoyed studying this part of the text uh, because it's an interesting picture here. Because at the beginning of this vision, Daniel tells us where he is. He's standing on the banks of the Tigris. Now, just a quick geography lesson. Does anybody know where the Tigris is? It's where we would call modern-day Iran and Iraq. So that's where Daniel is. He's standing on the banks of the Tigris. But in the text, we have a number of references to the river. You see, in verse 5, we have uh, uh, several mentions of the river. Verse 6, several mentions of the river. Verse 7, uh, mention, uh, several mentions of the river but that the river that phrase there is actually the word that is most commonly used for the river Nile. So why when Daniel's standing on the Tigris and he gets this vision, this supernatural vision, is Daniel seeing not the Tigris but the Nile? The Nile, if you don't know, is not in Iran and in Iraq, it's all the way over in Egypt. What significance would the Nile have to Daniel? Well, in the Old Testament, the people of God, their entire relationship with God, many of their feasts and many of their days and many of the things they observed were tied to one particular event. And what was that event? Their liberation from Egypt. The Nile River for the people of God represented a line. On one side of the Nile River, the people of God were persecuted, they were enslaved. On the other side of the river, that is where they found the, fu- the, the deliverance of God. And so here, this picture is pretty obvious. What Daniel is being reminded of is while he sees all of these persecutions happening in this final vision, the story is going to be the same as it was in Egypt. There is still going to be deliverance by the hand of God. But then we get a question. One of the angels... Speaks to another angel and he says, Well, how long till the end of the persecution? And the other angel responds, It's going to go on for uh, a particular period of time. And he says, He gives him literally the text would read this way He says, uh, The persecution is going to go for a unit of time, two units of time, and a half a unit of time. Now, we're given in the direct text here, we're given no indication of what that time is. It could be an hour, it could be a day, it could be a week, it could be a year. We could make a pretty good guess, though, because back in chapter 7, the same phrase is used. And there, the number is three and a half years. And so we could look at this, and it would make a lot of sense to look at this and say, the angel is saying to Daniel, or saying to each other, that in three and a half years, it'll take this Antichrist to destroy or to shatter the power of God's people. What does the text mean by that? Well, it's likely the idea that it's going to take him three and a half years to burn down churches, to lock people up, to take their property, to set them into the margins of society. He's going to shatter their power. But it's also the idea that we we should understand. Three and a half, I don't get into numerology very much when it comes to Scripture, but one number is pretty consistently uh, clear in Scripture, and that is the number seven. Seven means to be done. So, three and a half means is a broken number, meaning that while the, this persecutor will persecute the people of God and he will shatter their power at three and a half years, it means that his shattering or his persecution will not be in totality. Some people or some scholars look, for example, at Antioch Epiphanes. His persecution of the Jewish people lasted approximately three and a half years. Other people look at different times. I'll mention that in a moment. But the point of the, the, the time, times, and a half a time, the point of the text is to say that there is a limit to it. That in the midst of the chaos and the fear and distress, all caused by the Antichrist, Daniel's being told that God is the one who is still in control. But that is an interesting question. Two-word question, how long? Have you ever had a kid ask you that on a trip? How long? It is, it is one of, if not the single most popular question in all of the Bible. How long? Abraham and Sarah were given a promise, right? Told they were going to have a boy. He was going to be the boy of blessing. And they got caught up in this question of how long. And because they got caught up with it twice, Abraham gave his wife away. And once his wife gave him a handmaiden. The people of God in Egypt asked how long? And Moses tried to take the matters into his own hands. He ends up killing a guy and then having to spend 40 years in the desert. Once he's used by God to deliver the people that get out into the desert, and they ask, how long until we get to go to the promised land? And by that point, Moses is starting to ask God, how long do I have to put up with these people? And you see it all through the prophets. The prophets will ask the question, how long, Lord, until you bring judgment? Or, Lord, how long until you're going to bring deliverance? The psalmist will ask it several times, How long, Lord, until you're going to answer my call? The disciples will ask Jesus, How long until you'll establish your kingdom? And many times in the Old Testament, the people of God are encouraged to look back to Egypt, to the deliverance God gave them there, and to remind them no matter how long it's taking, God still can deliver. But as Christians, where are we to look back to? Not to Egypt but to the cross. In our times of trouble, our times of distress, our times of difficulty, we are called back to look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because just how the Nile reminds Daniel of God's deliverance of his people, the cross reminds us of the great and ultimate deliverance of God's people. And we are reminded that our greatest problem has been solved, not only has it been solved by grace, But that means all other problems in our life are secondary. And that means all other deliverances are secondary, meaning they are all all less, they require less to deliver us. But all of those secondary deliverances will all be times of grace. And we follow, we give an example. We're told to follow and be like Jesus. And Jesus gives us two prayers to pray in our times of distress. And what are those two prayers? Father, deliver me, and, Father, your will be done. So we can trust the Lord. That's another lesson here. We can trust the Lord in our times of distress. And then number three, and lastly this morning, we need to trust God for our endurance. Now in verse 8, Daniel says it right out. So I heard all this, but I didn't understand it. And so Daniel, finally, he asks a question. He says, oh, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? Daniel's just like us, isn't he? He sees this vision of the future. He sees what's going to happen. And what does Daniel want to know? What will the outcome be? Daniel doesn't, doesn't, or Daniel wants to know the end of the story. But once again, after answering this question, what does God say to him? Verse 9, go your way, Daniel. He's saying to him, move on. Daniel wants the comfort of the, the, the same comfort we want. The comfort of knowing how everything's going to turn out. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great to know already that on Tuesday, Alex's surgery would have gone just fine? That'd be a great comfort, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be a great comfort that we would know that Sven and Crystal would make it home safely? But that's what Daniel wants. He wants the comfort of knowing that everything's going to turn out okay. But God says to him, no. Daniel, move on with your life. Verses 10 through 12, Daniel say, or the angel says to Daniel, let me tell you how life is going to be until the end. The first thing Daniel's told is he says, you know what? There are going to be those who are going to be redeemed. Over the, until the end of time, we talked about this just a handful of weeks ago, until the end, till the very end of human history, God is going to be in the business of redeeming people. And that is always what he's going to be doing until the end. But Daniel's also told that the wicked will act wickedly. And that the wicked will live ignorance until the end. He's saying, Daniel, look, people are are evil. They're going to continue to be evil. They're going to continue to do evil things. And they're going to continue to do it in ignorance. It means that no matter how much education, how much advancement in technology, whether we ever get to a society that looks anything like most of our sci-fi films or not, human beings are going to continue to live in ignorance. The Apostle Paul describes it this way. He says, look, human beings are going to continue to live and there are going to be those who are going to hear the gospel and to them it is going to smell like a rotting corpse. Even though it was the nourishment, it is the bread of life, it is the the clear water to, to the thirst of their soul, all they're going to smell is a rotting corpse. Paul says that, They're going to hear the gospel and they're going to believe it to be foolishness, even though it is the wisdom of God. And this is thy way it will be until the end. Now, what's interesting here, almost seemingly out of left field, is we're given these two numbers. He follows all of this up by saying, okay, he says, look, this is going to last 1,290 days. Does anybody, anybody know the math? How many years is that? It's three and a half again. He says, look, this is going to go on for three and a half years. But then, interestingly enough, in the next phrase, this angel says to Daniel, blessed or a blessing upon those who make it 1,335 days. So we're talking about three and a half years plus approximately a month. Now, I take the interpretation here that these numbers are symbolic because of what he's just said about how the people are going to be redeemed and then there's going to be people who are always going to be wicked and this is just this cycle is going to keep going until the end. I think these numbers are meant to be symbolic. Now, some scholars, let me explain to you, some scholars do look at Antioch Epiphanes and they see this number and they go, look, his persecution lasted three and a half years. When it stopped, he died a month later. Other people go to uh, A.D. seventy. For three and a half years, there was tension on the temple mount. And then after about three and a half years, it took him a month to dismember the temple. But again, that's not really given to us anywhere here in the text. I think the number is meant to say this. Three and a half years has been thrown at Daniel several times. He's been told about this limiting of of the persecution of the people of God for three and a half years. He's given this number again and again and again. So what would be the significance of adding a month? And I think the idea here is this. Blessed is the one who remains faithful no matter how long it takes. You see, sometimes it's easy to hold on when you think you know when the end is going to be. But the point that I think is being made here is the blessing is for those who are willing to hold on, to endure, to remain faithful no matter how long it's going to take. And then the very last verse of the text, the angel says to Daniel, go live and die. Find your rest in heaven and find it until the day of resurrection. Now, one of the greatest and most glorious pictures of the resurrection is in the first three verses of this chapter. The idea that we are going to be resurrected into resurrected bodies. We're going to live in the brightness of the glory of God. But not just that, according to those verses. We're going to be a part of the brightness of the glory of God. But the point I think here is to say to Daniel one more time, trust me. And now Daniel uh, is certainly a picture of endurance, right? Here's a teenage boy. He's taken into captivity. Far away from home. He's given the opportunity to to cast aside his faith. At the potential cost of his life, he stands with his faith. Daniel is faithful as we walk through the book. Daniel's faithful as he watches the nation of Babylon, which took him captive, fall and sees the rise of the Medo-Persians. Daniel continues to be faithful, knowing that there are enemies watching, wanting to throw him to the lions. We know that Daniel endures even through old age. But this text tells us, according to verse 8, that Daniel didn't always understand. That Daniel had to be reminded many times of the reality that it was God, not Daniel, who was in control. In fact, the name of God used by Daniel the most in this book is the name Adonai, the one in control. Daniel did have questions like us. Daniel did struggle with fear of the future, just like us. But God's response to him is, trust me and live. We see in the text, blessed is the one who is willing to trust to endure past the point when rescue was expected. For example, blessed are Mary and Martha who loved the Lord past the death of their brother. Blessed was the woman who was willing to face hunger and death, yet still shared her last meal with the prophet Elijah. In the book of Psalms, Psalm 1 opens with what? The blessed man who endures. He finds himself planted by a river, a tree that is firmly in the ground. And from that picture in Psalm 1, again and again in the Psalms, we're we're told that the psalmist is going to endure. He's not going to be moved. Even when the dogs bark, even when the winds blow, even when things get dark, he's not going to be moved. Of course, our example is Christ. Once again, the Bible tells us he endured what? The cross. He endured, we were saved, he was glorified. And this is the example to follow. And the Bible says an attitude like the one that Christ had is only found by the sovereign sustaining and keeping grace of God. I tell people this all the time when they come to see me. If there's something that Christians want, we always want, uh, we want the grace now for what we're worried about later. We want God to come and give us comfort now for the thing that hasn't happened yet. And what I tell people is it doesn't work that way. The promise we have is that we're going to get the grace we need when we need it. And we have to trust what God has told us, that we will not be left alone. So God knows us. He knows our fear of the future. And in his mercy, in his book, he gives us glimpse, glimpses of the future and he asks us to trust him. He tells us that there's going to be distress, but again, calls us to trust him. And if we're going to endure through all of these difficult things and all of the things we face, we're going to have to trust him. And the prayer that Christ prays in the garden is going to have to be our prayer. Father, thy will be done. Jesus told his disciples several times. He said, look, I've come to do my father's will. I've come to eat the food that my father has prepared for me. I've come to drink the cup. And he did it for us. He did it for us to purchase our future in spite of our past. And so let us follow the example of trusting God. We can trust God with the future. We can trust God in the midst of our distress. And we must trust God if we're going to endure. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the lessons that come to us, the edification that comes to us, even as we look at texts that are sometimes a little difficult to understand, but also texts that tell us about a future that uh, that, uh, we may never experience. But your word is edifying, your word is truth, and it shapes and molds us and encourages us towards Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.